Today's show is brought to you by Public. You'll be hearing more about them later on. But for now, let's get into today's interview. Very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Paul Hodges of New Normal Consulting and publisher of the PH Report. Paul, great to see you. Welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you very much. I survived Christmas in reasonable spirits. Well, I think, Paul, you're a lot more uh, bearish on the global economy than a lot of folks. There are a lot of folks who last year thought that there would be a recession. They looked at the 2023 economic data and they say, oh, nope, actually, there's going to be a soft landing. There's no recession. You know, in the U.S., and again, I as a, you know, America have a very U.S.-driven perspective, the unemployment rate's at 3.7%. Spending grew, the economy grew much more than inflation last year. There was basically a, a boom in the, the U.S. economy. And so I think a lot of people have taken the soft landing uh, uh, view. I take it, Paul, that you have stubbornly not, you have a very, very different view. Well, we have a different view. We, were, we weren't particularly bearish at the beginning of, la- of last year. In our headline in January 23, for the report was 2023 seems set to see the arrival of winners and losers as recession starts to bite. And, and I, I think I'd hold to that in terms of what's happened in Europe. I mean, Europe is definitely in a major downturn for all the reasons we understand. I mean, you've got you know, the, the shock of the invasion, you've got the loss of, of cheap national gas, and of course, you've got the major downturn going on in China. China is also, you know, I mean, the, the GDP figures in China are targets, they're not outputs. So if the government decides it's going to have 5%, it gets 5%. But I don't think anybody in their right mind believes that China is doing very well at the moment. And yes, as you would expect, the states is is, is doing a bit better. So I, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I must say, you know, having, having gone back and looked at what we were writing in the first half of last year, I wouldn't, in the light of what we know today, want to change that. I think we got it about right. You know, we were, you know, when, when we're writing the report, we think very carefully about what's the precise position that we're in today. We don't go for a flash headline. Oh, God, you know, it's all disaster or something. Uh, we try and say, well, look, you know, this is where we were. And, and because what we're trying to do is to help investors and companies to understand what, what's the direction of travel here. And the thing, the thing that we're looking at most at the moment is around the concept of winners and losers. And, and the, the one point I think I'd come back to you on, Jack, is our real concern is that a lot of potential losers don't realise they are at risk. And that's worrying because they will realise sometime this year. We're pretty clear about that. And it may be too late for them. Thanks for clarifying that. What, what I meant is that right now in, in 2024, I think you have three uh, you know, uh, possibilities. You think there could be a soft landing, there could be a recession, or there could be a depression. So what I, what I meant to say, Paul, is that right now, I think your economic outlook is significantly at odds with the mainstream, you know, bulge bracket economist outlook of there will be a soft landing. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, yeah, we're, we, we, in, you know, we spent about 18 months in the Financial Times and other areas from 2006 to 2008, saying, look, guys, there's going to be this massive subprime crisis. And everybody told us, everybody, more or less, central banks and so on, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. We, we really, really, really do. And turned out we were right. So I, 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 I've, I've got used over the years to people telling me I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, and you know, you obviously listen to people, and if they come up with a reasonable argument, and you think, "Oh, wait a minute, I hadn't thought about that," we change our view. 
mm-hmm. as Kane said, you know, if, if the facts change, I, I, cha- I cha- change my view. But I haven't seen anything. And what's been interesting for us over the last six or nine months has been the growing interest in what we're talking about from central banks. We've never seen this before. You know, when we talk about demographics and so on, three or four years ago, we were almost not quite told to shut up, you know, but it was very much demographics, aging populations, that's just higher health care and more pension spending. No, no, guys, we, it's about spending patterns. It's about demand. No, 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 it isn't. We can always create demand as a central bank. I think particularly in Europe, the central banks are not so sure they can create demand anymore. And so that's a big, that's a big shift going on. And I think we'll see more of that this year. Mm-hmm. So yes, subprime, you know, everything in, in hindsight is obvious, very hard to see things uh, going forward. What would be the catalyst for a significant slowdown in the, the global economy? And I, I, you, you hinted at demographics, which I think is a very long-term secular uh, a catalyst and force, but there are also more cyclical forces, the rise in interest rates, the weakness that you've been tracking for a very long time in the in the chemicals market, which, which I should say, you know, you are an expert in the chemicals business and you know, chem- chemicals business t- tends to lead the global economy. And that's why your name, you know, it's not only the pH report, or your initials, but is uh, you know, the, the chemical term. So I, I, I yeah. love the name of your report and uh, the work too, too, is, is truly excellent. So how, how would you you know, if, if let's just start a very broad brush, three possible outcomes, soft landing, recession, and then depression, your, your three outcomes, how would you sort of assign the probabilities or how are you thinking about how it may play out? Well, I think that if you, yeah, we, we obviously look very closely at the idea of a soft landing, we would love a soft landing. You know, soft landings are better for consultants, they, you know, Companies are doing better. They've got more money to spend. They can throw a bit of it in our direction. Mm. Thank you very much, madam. We're not by nature, you know, happy with this. But if you if you look at, well, come back for a moment to your point, Jack, about demographics, because demographics is a long term issue. But we wrote the book about it in 2011, which is 12 years ago, and what we were talking about then has now played out, and essentially. There have been two, in my life, my working life, there have been two massive dividends that have really supported everything. The first was the demographic dividend, the baby boomers. Yes, we created quite a bit of inflation to start with because there were lots of babies, 52% rise in the number of babies in the US, for example, between 1946 and 1964. Well, obviously, you had inflation, nothing to do with Friedman and money supply or anything like that was a symptom, not a cause. But then they all went through education, they all went through apprenticeships, and they went and they started to produce and they settled down and they had their own kids. And so you had more or less constant growth. This was the baby boom, the demographic dividend. But these boomers, of which I am one, aren't dying now at the age of. 65 at pension age or whatever they're living they've got another 15 years of life expectancy and in the states if you look at the bureau of labor studies data which comes out every year is pretty pretty reliable it shows that after the age of 55 spending begins to drop off and by 75 it's down around 40 percent four zero percent well if you do the maths as our friends on the West Coast used to say in uh, the dot-com debacle, do the maths, you see that at 55 to 46, all of those are in the 
the perennials area now. And if you add 55 to 64, they're all pretty much there as well. So you've now got this, the, what was the largest and wealthiest generation in history has moved comfortably into the perennials 55 plus, but they are a replacement economy. And what the central banks have done over the last 15 or 20 years is essentially to try and print babies. Now, if it was right that they could do that, then obviously growth would have picked up, but it hasn't been. Instead, we have all this debt. You know, the Federal Federal Reserve debt, government debt, I mean, you know, government, US government debt now going up by a billion a quarter or something horrendous. Like that, 34 billion, I think I saw the last number. China, even greater debt and so on, Europe debt and so on. So in other words, they haven't been able to print babies. So the, 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 the great baby boomer demographic dividend has di- become a demographic deficit. Nothing you can do about it. And what's even more alarming, if you like, for, is over the last couple of years, the peace dividend that we got from the end of the, the Cold War in 1989 has reversed. We're now at war. We've got two major wars. We've got the war in Europe over Ukraine, and we've got the war in the Middle East. And if you go back, I was looking back at this, and Bill Clinton, in his State of the Union debate speech, in, 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 I think it was 98 or or, or 99, boasted about the fact that, and he didn't say it was because of the peace dividend, but it obviously was, that the, the US now had a balanced budget for the first time in 30 years. This was trillions of dollars that wasn't being spent on defence that was now available to be spent on healthcare, on education, on tax cuts, or what, whatever you, you wanted to do. And so those two great dividends of our lifetimes are no longer there. And so the, the other things that are you know, going on around us, short term, so there's no surprise that interest rates are going up. You know, We've been forecasting that quite happily. Uh, and we wouldn't be surprised if they go up further. Why? Because one of the things the central banks did was to encourage companies and individuals to borrow on the basis that always, you know, forward guidance, not mm-hmm. your forward mm-hmm. guidance, but very unreliable forward guidance, Jack. Forward guidance, were z- zero interest rates will be here forever. Well, that hasn't worked out terribly well, has it? And so you've got now 20% of S&P 500 companies who can't pay their interest bills out of earnings. I mean, if you think about that for a moment, you can't pay your interest bills out of earnings. What are you doing here? Well, you're just refinancing. Doesn't matter. Hey, come on, Jack, you know, I need another five billion. Let, you know, let me let me refinance. But now you can't refinance. We, we wrote in the report, as you saw, I mean, BASF, the world's largest chemical mm-hmm. company, you know, very. You know, I don't want to make any mistake that I'm not suggesting they're 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 in trouble or anything like that. But just to say, for the for the world's largest chemical company, very well established, very well respected, their interest rates on their refinancing that they did, their rolling over debt and so on, went up from below one percent to over four percent. Now that's a lot of extra money, a lot of extra money on 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 billions of euros and billions of dollars, and that's happening across the piece. So this is why I'm worried that people are, they're, they're getting into a trading mode and they're saying, oh yeah, we'll, we'll bet on the, the, the employment numbers or whatever. And they're forgetting that what's going to happen here is people are going to be unable to refinance. And that's going to be very awkward 
or they'll refinance at a rate that is, is losing them, them money. Yeah, I mean, we 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 know we know people who've, who've who've been able to refinance. I mean, obviously, if you're a CEO, the bet you know, you want to make sure you've got enough cash in the bank before going bust. But we know people who've raised you know considerable sums of money, but they're having to pay you know thirteen, fourteen percent. Now, at some point, the lenders are going to go. Wait a minute, this how much they normally make? What's their normal? And where that doesn't work either. But at least you've got the money. You know, that's for the lender. That's the lender's problem now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was a big, you know, huge you know, global chemical giant, but I think it's based in Europe. Maybe that's a distinction between Europe and the, the U.S. is that in Europe, it does play out in the way of, oh, higher interest rates you know, quite quickly cause a ratcheting up interest expense that can catch up with companies very quickly. I mean, in America, maybe, maybe we are in la-la land, but you know, there are a lot of people who took out a 30-year mortgage and, and, and corporations, Apple, Amazon, they, they, you know, they paid 3% on their debts. And they're actually making money now. And, and, and the companies with issues in America are actually the banks, the companies that, you know, all the investing experts said would make money when rising rates rose, just because the, the term structure of, of the duration was so long. But uh, yeah, okay, so that, th- thank you for outlining. Okay, so two forces, peace dividend no longer with us, demographics unfavorable in the West to, to growth. But in terms, can, can, we, can we zoom in a little bit more to the shorter term, your shorter, you know, your six months, 12 month, outlook in in the face of those longer term uh, uh, secular forces yeah i mean the the, the key thing and I, you know, i've been an oil trader in houston so you know it's all very well having a theory you can say but if you can't tell me when paul i'm really not interested and so you know i'm, I'm used to that, that that debate you know for a lot of uh, you know, for a lot of corporates for a lot of big investors actually it is important to know what's going to happen or think about what's happening three or four years away because you don't you don't have you know you can't move overnight if you like but you know there is a moment when you know the, the the rubber hits the road on these things, and talk about why you know, the four or five great questions of life. Why why could things go wrong? What would you be seeing if things went wrong? When do you think they would be going wrong? How would they be going wrong? Those are the kind of questions that we're, that we're looking at now very closely. And you know what what we see. I mean, we haven't talked yet. But I'm sure if we were on in a couple of weeks' time, we'd be talking about the the, the, the debt the debt issue and you know, the government 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 default and, and so on. And you know, there there is a, a a major political issue which is set to impact financial markets. You know, are we going to be able in an election year to be able to get a debt rollover? You know, I've seen, for example, comments from leading house. Uh, Republicans saying we're not going to do anything for on on, on the border or anything on Ukraine because we're not giving that so and so Biden any benefits. So and, and you've got a new a, a new House Speaker who's got to prove himself. So I doubt that he'll be proving himself by saying, "Oh yes, go ahead, let's let's do the sensible thing." So so we've got yeah. You know, we, we, what, what I'm talking about is we've got there a pretty pretty major risk developing that nobody is talking about and those are the kind of issues that we tend to focus on you know what it what is it if you sort of lift up the lift up the stone and, and look, look look under it is there anything moving there and if if was so we're really seeing now a major problem in china we're seeing major problems in in europe and we're seeing potentially now major problems 
in the States. I'm not talking about the end of civilization as it stands in the monitor, but, you know, I would be amazed if we end this year with the optimism with which we've passed this started. I mean, you remember we talked a year ago about China. That, 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 was, that, was the, that was the moment where everybody was bullish on China. And you were asking me, well, come on, Paul, how, you know, how could yeah, you be? No, no. You're right. You know, and, you know, because zero COVID, it's going to, and we, were going, well, we talked about the issues rather than the hype. We were right. You know, like everybody who rushed into China lost a lot of money. Paul, I think it's a very reasonable claim to say that it's uh, possible or likely that by the end of this year, people are less optimistic than they are now, purely on the fact that right now, optimism is, is very high, I would say. So as I say, we're not, we're not downbeat normally. So we've been in markets where we've actually been more optimistic. I mean, 2009, 2010, we were more optimistic than, than everybody else because we, you know, we could see from the chemical industry yeah. that all of this were picking up. And I would say in, in 2021, on the, on the economy, global, I'd say you were much more upbeat than yeah. people that, yeah, mainstream. What we're doing all the time is to say, look, the chemical industry is the third largest industry in the world after agriculture and energy. It has to look over its shoulder everywhere. You know, because you've got to look at you've got to look at energy, obviously, because it's the feedstock. You've got to look at autos. You've got to look at you know, construction. You've got to look at electronics and so on, because these are all key industries. So, you, and you've got to look at every every country, and it's been around a long time. So, you, you know, it's been around a hundred years or more. Petrochemicals has been been around fifty or sixty years, and so on. So, you you've got an awful lot of experience and data against to assess against this, and it is you know, really, truly, the, the best leading indicator. And all we're really trying to do is to understand what is this data trying to tell us? We don't go into it with a view that says, oh, it's got to look good, it's got to look bad. We go, that's interesting, I wonder what that means. So we're, as, as I say, if you if you dive down into construction, for example, I entirely agree with you. 30-year mortgages distort the market in the States for, for housing versus Europe or whatever. But every market is different. In China, for example, there were no private, there was no private ownership of houses until 1998. So and now they had the biggest real estate bubble in history. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they've, they've, they've caught up and surpassed the states. I mean, this is, this is appalling news for you. you know, but it, but it, so, you know, so every market in Germany, you know, it's a vast amount of rented accommodation, relatively high quality, relative, people don't buy, they don't need to. And so on. So each market is different, but the fact that it's different doesn't mean that there isn't an underlying trend here, which is things are going well. There's lots of demand. It's all affordable, or actually, it's not. There's not that much demand, and it's very unaffordable. And people are running short of cash. You know, and, and those are those are the things that the chemical industry is telling you. Today's show is brought to you by Public. Public.com has just launched its new high yield cash account, offering an industry leaving 5.1% APY. No fees, no subscription, no minimums or maximums, just 5.1% interest on your cash. You can transfer or withdraw cash as often as you like, and you get up to $5 million FDIC insurance. Grow your cash at an industry-leading 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account at Public. Go to public.com slash forward guidance to learn more. That's public.com slash forward guidance. This is a paid endorsement for public.com. 5.1% APY as of December 20, 2023 and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High-yield cash accounts are available for U.S. members only. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, I just want to say for the audience, the reason, so you, you have a, a outlook 
sounds like your kind of basic case is is recession uh, for the global economy. I'm trying to just sort of, you know, I talk to a lot of people. I'm a lot. There are a lot of soft landing people. I'm trying to you know just just bridge the gap. That's that's all 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 I'm doing. Uh, how would you explain the very high levels of spending in the U.S.? I mean, people are spending a lot of money. 2021 was a gangbuster consumer year. 2022, you know, growth was something like eight percent on top of that, and then last year. Growth was five or six percent of growth, so it just keeps on growing. The rate of growth is slowing, but when you know when people are spending money at five or six percent and inflation is three percent, three or four percent, that's real growth, a real growth in spending of two percent, which is you know it's kind of it's, it's kind of kind of a boom. So I, I understand that America is not the, the world, but take us from where America is right now to a, a recession in America, which I can certainly see, or a depression in America, which which you know I, I think is a a little harder to, to for for me and maybe other people to see. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is it, relatively straightforward, I think, to explain. And we, you know, we, 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 I mean, the San Francisco Fed did quite a lot of work on this. The IMF did quite a lot of work on this. You know, people in the States and also in many countries in, in Europe actually got more money in furlough payments than they would have done if they'd been working. And you look at the savings rates and so on. And I don't think there was anybody who thought that the saving rates would come back to normal before, you know, in other words, the, the furlough payment money had all been spent until the end of quarter three. There's been a debate in the last three or four months about whether the the, the top 10% still have money and the other 90% don't, which seems we don't have enough data, but, but anecdotally, you know, if you talk, if you, if you listen to what the, the Walmarts and the Targets and all those companies are talking about, it does seem to be a much tighter spending pattern now among most people. It would be foolish to uh, suggest that you're in recession if people have got more money than in the you know, first half of last year than they had the previous year. I mean, yeah, that, 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 was, that, that never made any sense to us. Uh, it was the opposite of China. You know, why would you think China with these structural problems could possibly have a boom? Oh, no, it's going to have a boom. Okay, fine. You know, why would you think the states with this structural benefit would have a depression? Well, oh, we do. We, well, you know, uh, people have opinions. That's fine. Uh, but if if we look at just to explain where we are today, if you look at the the job numbers as we have them, and and how they've been evolving, what you're seeing, I think, is that around fifty percent of the jobs now are part time jobs, and people are taking on two jobs to manage. You're also seeing quite a divergence between the two employment surveys. And I don't think either of them, frankly, are particularly accurate because they're getting very low response rates today. But you know, maybe they are suitable enough to say that there's a sort of bit of a pattern here. And you know, the, the, the phenomenon of buy now, pay later seems to be very interesting. If you look at that shot up from nowhere to, to trillions of dollars now, that all implies to me that the consumer is cutting back in areas, and you look at you know you look look at spending patterns today. Yes, the car industry, the auto industry, has been doing well because there were major shortages of parts, or a major shortage of cars, and, and so on and so forth. But that is now unwinding, and I don't think many people we we've been with the consensus on this. We don't think many people would you know expect to be twenty four to be a, a ban a year. You know, we think it's going to be rather difficult. Other areas of the economy, construction. Uh, is really interesting in the States because, as you say, you've got 
individuals who've got two or three percent 30 year mortgage and they aren't moving. And so the builders, you know, the, the question is, who takes the risk? Is there a risk here? Well, obviously, there is. Interest rates are no longer two or three percent. So somebody's got a risk here. Silicon Valley obviously showed us that some of the banks have a risk. Builders clearly have a risk because they're they're still bidding for if you look at housing permits, you look at at housing starts and so on, they're still building quite high levels. I mean, remember in 2008, 2000, housing starts went down to, I think, from memory, 650,000. And we're more than double that today. So so there's quite a lot of new building going on. Now, you would argue, and I, I think you'd be right, well, there isn't a lot of immigration. So, you know, but, you know, are all the houses in the right place is an interesting question. Are we getting squeezes in some and problems in another. This is where I think the chemical industry has an advantage because we do get that kind of granularity rather than, oh, here's your, here's your headline in the Wall Street Journal, you know, oh, let's buy or sell based on that. We get a much more nuanced picture. Uh, so, so my answer to your question is that the trends in consumer spending as reported by retailers, as reported by the lenders, as reported by Barclay Card and MasterCard and so on and so forth, all seems to suggest that the consumer is under increasing pressure. So that moves me very well, very far from the idea of a soft landing. You know, the, and I, I agree with you that from a US perspective, the idea of a depression sounds ridiculous. But I then want to point you at another unrecognized area of Japan and China. Because after all, they are the second and third largest e economy in the world. And I had an interesting conversation a few months ago with the de deputy head of one of Europe's major central banks. And I said, you know, I'm wor worried about what's, what's, what's going on there. And she looked at me and she said, oh, no, no, there's no worry. But we had that in 97. And it was, it was, you know, it was a problem, but we cope with it. And then she paused. And then she went, but they're much larger now, aren't they? And I went, yeah, they're much larger. So w w what is much larger? Well, so the Japanese and Chinese economies. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the risk, the, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, to be absolutely clear, you know, to start people off the weekend in the right frame of mind, we're talking about a major Asian debt crisis. You know, you've got Japan, which has followed through on the Bananke strategy since 1999, 2000, and has built up vast amount of debt, 265% of GDP, is got an aging population and a declining population. So it can't grow, you know, because of the fact that, you know, you could look at the, uh, the Japanese uh, data for spending, consumer spending is, you know, about 60% or so of GDP. And if you're all your, you know, it's got the highest in the world, proportion of people over, 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 over 55, about 45% or so, you, you cannot therefore have economic growth because these people are replacement economies. So what are you doing? Well, you've seen, if I, I mean, if I said to you just for a moment, Jack, you know, I, I want to talk about a country where the, uh, the, the currency has fallen 50% against the dollar in the last couple of years. Okay, I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right, it isn't Argentina. Yeah, yeah. You know, it is Argentina as well, of course. It is Turkey as well. So, but it is Japan. Now, this is this is you know, the currency is trying to tell us something about the outlook. 
right? And people say, oh, yes, well, look at the Japanese stock market's going fine. Well, yeah, we know. I mean, let's go back to Zimbabwe, goodness knows. You know, what, what do you do if you've got money and your currency is falling apart? You buy stocks because that's the nearest thing you've got for a hedge. So it's no surprise that the Nikkei index is going up. But if you buy it in dollars, it's not doing that well. You know, I have to break it to you. You know, the translation is not, is not great. And so we think we are moving slowly but surely. Everything moves slowly but surely in Japan to a world where the central bank, now Bank of Japan, has to make a choice about do we keep interest rates below 1%, in which case, you know, look at the, look at the yen versus the dollar, that goes if it goes through 150 to the you know because it was 100 a couple of years ago if it goes through 150 does it stop at 151 or does it go to 175 or does it go to 200 you know not overnight and so on but you know, is that where the markets are going to take it and what does that do to Japan's economy if the if the yen goes another 20 30 percent or whatever that's the risk there or do we allow interest rates to go to more normal levels? So we, you know, we went from zero to half a percent, and then we were forced to 1% cap. If we allowed interest rates to go to world levels, supposing they went to 3%, Japan is bankrupt. You know, you can't, you've got 200% of a debt as GDP, and, and you've got no means of growing the GDP in order to, so you're, you know, you've got a real problem. And once that problem has been observed, and let's face it, nobody's paying much attention to it at the moment. So, you know, I'm not expecting, you know, it, it to happen this afternoon. But once that problem has been observed, people are then going to say, well, wait a minute, China has got an even more debt to GDP, 310, 320. And it's not all owned by the central bank. It's a lot of private debt. Well, I mean, it's, the, it's the, bank the, debt. Well, the, 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 pro the problem you've got in, in China is that you had a development model set up by Deng Xiaoping from 1978, reform and opening up, which was based on bringing people out of absolute poverty. You know, people, you know, most of, you know, China, 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 you know, urban disposable income in China in 1978, money of the day was $79 a year. It was $39 a year in the rural areas. This is dirt poor, right? And so it's been a fantastic achievement to move forward, but you're still only at something like $8,000 a year disposable income in the urban areas and only about 3000 in the rural areas. And Chinese citizens are not really spending it. It's an no, investment. Sure. The, the problem is that 10, 15 years ago, you needed to move away from the process of being the manufacturing capital of the world. And instead, you needed to focus on building out a social security system, a safety net. You needed to have pensions. You needed to have medical care. You needed to have all these things. Because if you don't have a state system, people have to save to cover it. They didn't do this. They instead went for stimulus. They instead went for a property bubble. Well, property at its peak was something like 50% of, of, sorry, not 50, it's about 29% of GDP. And, and house prices in the top tier one cities were 50 times earnings. You know, you and I may think that 15 times earnings in New York or London is pretty, pretty eye popping. And so, but this is, this is three times that. And so, so now, of course, the bubble has burst. I mean, the deputy, the former deputy head of the National Statistics Bureau gave an interview to Reuters a while ago, where he said, nobody quite knows the degree of overbuilding, but it could be 
that there's enough empty buildings to house the entire population of China, 1.4 billion people. And so once you lost confidence in the government, which is what's happened, you can't get confidence back. You know, I either trust, you know, you can't, it's like being pregnant. You're either, you can't be half pregnant. You either are or you aren't. And people have lost confidence because of zero COVID in the government. And so now you've got a, a, a really dangerous situation in China as a knock-on from Japan. And I don't believe that the US or Europe could possibly be immune from any kind of downturn in those economies, because you are talking about the second and third largest economies in the world. Hey, everyone, we're about to get back in the action. But before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG10 to get 10% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. How do you think it plays out for China? What do you think the odds are of the Chinese government being able to, to restore order and the China, uh, I think, is in a recession. I mean, their, their GDP growth looks good and their real GDP growth looks good because they have, you know, very low inflation or even deflation. But uh, yeah, it's, it all is not well in the state of Denmark. What do you think the odds are that this is a trough and that the Chinese economy will actually grow? You know, this is the 2009, in the same way 2009 US economy was in a very bad way. The US economy rebounded quite well, at least relative to, to Europe. Why won't this be that same moment for China? Well, because you've got an aging population and you've got a declining population and you have an even bigger problem that because of the one child policy after 1980, people had to choose one child. At the peak, you had 118 boys being born for every 100 girls. And that continued from 1980. And we've got data you know, up till 2021. We don't have 2022 or 23 yet. Um, but what we can see is that if you take a normal boy-girl ratio, the boys tend to survive better in the womb than girls. And so you normally have a ratio of 103 or 105 boys born to 100 girls. If you, if you look at what we had, we actually had an average over that period of 114 boys. So we're short of around 90 million, sorry, 80, sorry, 80 to 90 million uh, girls. Now, if you don't have girls, boys can't marry. If you don't have girls and boys can't marry, yeah, you, don't, you, you, you don't have family formation. If you don't have family formation, you don't tend to buy property. You don't need a home or whatever. You know, lads like ourselves can dot on someone's car, carpet. You know, we're, we're happy to do it. You know, we're not 
and, and so on. It's you know, we're not doing it. Come along, we're going to go. Oh yes, okay, yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know. So no women, no children. Yep. So, 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 so you've got this position now, where because of the one-child policy and the you know the side effects, the unexpected side effects, you know, they were panicking about you know overpopulation and so on, which is never a problem really, but everybody was panicking at the time, and so they did this. And the consequence is that you've now not only got a vast expansion of empty property, but you also have, have got a vast under-representation uh, of people who want to buy this property. So, so my, my, my question for, you know, for the Chinese government is, how could you get out of this? And the answer is you can't. What about giving people money and basically doing what the, America did in 2020? Uh, I, I think maybe China may be philosophically disinclined to do that, but I'm setting aside practicality and what actually China would do. I'm, say, I'm talking about the purely how they might do it. Why would but, that happen? But, but, but Jack, this is exactly what they did. They built subprime on steroids. That was a, a credit bubble. That was not giving people money. That, that was well, giving people money that they had to pay back. And you know what I mean? I'm talking about checks in the mail. At the end of the day, so the subprime crisis in the States was about giving people teaser loans that they couldn't actually pay when the the rate went up from zero to uh, to to a more normal rate. Therefore, you had the crisis. This is this is the same. You know, it's, so it's, they were both credit. If you hadn't given if nobody, Green uh, Greenspan and Bernanke hadn't given out teaser loans, and Greenspan hadn't gone around saying, "Oh, you can't possibly have a national housing crisis in the states," and so on, then you 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 wouldn't have had subprime. And yeah, of Greenspan was, like, was the one giving teaser loans, but I know what you mean. But the low rates, yeah. regulation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you have a situation where people, yeah, we know what the disposable income is. It's published. We know this is government data. So there's no reason to, to particularly de- doubt that they're under-recording it. You know, if they say it's $8,000 for urban area people, it's unlikely to be 50000 You know, if it was 50000 they'd want to tell you about it. So 8000 which 8000 compared to seventy nine, you know, over, over 40, 50 years is pretty good going. Yeah, so let's let, let's remember that. What you've got now, however, is you've you you've built up through the manufacturing and China being the manufacturing capital of the world, with very powerful interest groups that want to maintain spending on property, want to maintain spending on infrastructure and so on. Yeah, you know, ten years ago, China went into building high speed rail. Great idea. You know, they pinched the the Japanese bullet train thing. Sorry, no, I mean, they came up with a Chinese Chinese version of Japanese bullet trains, and yeah, you know, of course, and bullet trains with Chinese characteristics, phrase. And so they, so you you build that all out, and obviously, if you build a, a high speed rail link between Beijing and Shanghai, fantastic. If you start building between every little station all over the country, as you start to do, the the chances of actually making any money from that or changing the strength of the economy. Yeah. I mean, there was a very interesting Professor Zhang, one of the leading universities, came out with a paper where he said, you know, probably, you know, up to a quarter of the expenditure has been completely wasteful and inefficient. He's speaking this non-productive spending. That's it. You know, yeah. oh, so so you you've you've got a situation now in China where they've and partly, of course, this was due to Trump. Yeah, up till Trump, China had thought more or less, look. U.S. and China are going to be the biggest economies in the world. This was, you know, set up by Kissinger and Nixon and so on, and built on after after that by Deng and so on. And the the idea was, yes, there'll be bumps in the road, but we'll always work together. Now, when Trump came along with the trade war, 
then they reconsidered. They said, well, if we can't rely on the states, we better go for self-sufficiency. The problem being that the states and Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, and to a certain extent Europe, had all built up expectations of major, ongoing, long-term export business into China based on the idea of working together and overcoming the bumps in the road. But if you take chemicals, again, we're moving now into a world where most of the major chemical products, polyethylene, polypropylene, polyester, PVC, and so on, then China is either now a net exporter, when it was the largest importer, or it's moving very rapidly towards a, a, a position of, 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 of balance. Look at what's happening in the States. has, has expanded ethylene capacity on the, by 40%. Over recent, over recent years, based on the shale boom. You have shale gas, you have this product called ethane. Ethane is explosive above a certain level. You can't put it in a pipeline. Oh, very, no, no problem at all. We put it into, into, into a chemical cracker and we make polyethylene and we sell polyethylene to China. Have the situation where all of this new investment in the States in terms of producing polyethylene Last investment, you know, tens of billions of dollars has gone into this. Similarly, the Middle East has gone into this, and there's no there's no market for it because China you know, China doesn't want it. It's self sufficient. Hmm. No, becoming self sufficient, <clears throat> there's no growth in in Europe. There's no growth in the states. If you look across the world, because of this mistake around the level of actual demand in China, principally, everybody has overinvested to the tune of about two hundred million tons. And what that means in a market of five or six hundred million tons is that they, you know, that, that everyone has lost pricing power. And so, but unlike mining, you know, if I always have this idea that if you're a copper miner and the price goes down, you call the the, the, the miners to the to the well the wet oil head or whatever you call it mine head, and you say, look, sorry guys, you know, it's we're not making any money, but we'll call you when we need you. But you can't do that in chemicals, because you have to take, you know, the, the ethane, for example, you have to take, otherwise you can't sell the natural gas or the naphtha that you use in Europe and parts of the States and, and Asia and so on. Again, that comes from, from refineries. And if you don't use the naphtha, you don't get the gasoline, you don't get the diesel, you don't get the jet fuel. So you, this, is, this becomes a distressed sale. And so un, unlike mining, where you can expect the price and supply will rebalance over a while, you can actually go for several years. It's called roll-through pricing. So your upstream partner who is making money on his natural gas or his, on his, on his gasoline sales or whatever it is, uh, he says, all right, how much do you need to keep running? Because I can't allow you to shut down. Yeah. You know? and, and so, so this is, you know, so it's not surprising that inflation is coming down because you've got vast overexpansion in a vast number of industries. I mean, not every industry, but if you look around, most people have fallen into this trap that they've expected China to grow like mad, and in fact it hasn't. And so all their plans, because that you know, the, once you've built the plant, you don't want to ring up Wall Street and say, oh, you know, you know we took 20 billion from you for this. Uh, we're terribly sorry, but we're going to close it down. Wouldn't do much for your CEO's share options. So what is the pricing like in the chemicals business now? Ch you know, choose whatever polymers you, you, you want, and, and how are they indicative of the, the global economy? And maybe we can share a chart you know, on screen afterwards. But basically, it's rock bottom. 
and it's been rock bottom now for six or nine months. And is it uh, is it going more rock bottom? Like, you know, can the price always go lower? Or well, it, I mean, what 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 it what it does is that the uh, the states has a has a better position because the the, the, the realizations from natural gas because the price of natural gas input has gone down. Yeah, yeah. So ethane prices are, are are relatively low, which gives the states a uh, an advantage in this. So it could afford to carry on selling. You know, but it, it's getting you know, essentially you're seeing this roll through pricing come across. I mean, if if you're Northeast Asia, for example, or Southeast Asia, so these are big economies after all. You know, we're talking about Taiwan, we're talking about Japan, and so on. You've built this capacity, and the idea was it was basically going for export to China, and now China doesn't want it, but you can't shut down. So therefore, prices just tumble, and people say, "Oh, but China will cut back," and you go. Why would China cut back? Because it needs to create the jobs. Now, everybody, everybody in the world has their own thing at the moment. The Middle East wants to retain demand for oil and gas. It recognizes electric vehicles are coming and that it's going to lose volume there. So it's going to put that into chemicals. It doesn't bother thinking about well, what's the demand for chemicals and polymers and so on. How's that growing? I know just, we've got 4 million barrels a day and we're going to put that into chemicals. Oh, really? How are you going to sell it? I don't know. We'll, we'll sell it. The States, we've got all this natural gas. We've spent 200 billion on, on, on new plants and so on. So we're going to sell it now. We're not going to shut down. Europe has no natural gas. No. So, so Europe, 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 so China is doing it because it wants jobs and, and security of supply, that self-sufficiency. So Europe is at risk. And you can see Europe's got higher costs. All sorts of things are going wrong. Now, is Europe, these are dynamic issues. Is Europe going to sit back and allow its chemical industry to be destroyed? Because if the chemical industry is destroyed, a whole lot of other industrial infrastructure is destroyed as well. Obviously not. Europe is not stupid. So Europe will come along with protectionism, just as the states did with the IRA. And you know, you have a 27.5% tariff on Chinese electric vehicles. Why? Because we want to preserve the U.S. car industry. Fine. So in Europe, we will, we're, we're, we're moving to carbon border adjustment mechanism. So if you can't prove that you're paying the same price for your carbon as we are in, this, in, in, in Europe, then you will have to, you have to pay over money to the government. So we will level the playing field. Yeah, every country will level the playing field one way or another. Small companies... Countries can't can't do it. They don't have the power. But a big big power block like Europe, four hundred and fifty million people, it, it 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 could stand up and fight for itself if it wants to, and it probably does. So the chemicals industry prices are at rock bottom. It's very weak. How long do you think it will continue to be weak? And, and describe the process by which you think this will lead to a broader slowdown in the in the global economy. Well, I mean, the reason why it's weak is twofold. One, the companies have overexpanded based on the false signals given by stimulus. You know, if you give people lots and lots of free money, unfortunately, present company accepted, they do stupid things with it. And, you know, the whole idea was, oh, this is real. That Nobody actually bothered to go back to the demographics and say, wait a minute, actually, we've got declining populations here. We've got aging populations. We know what that means. We'd all say, no, no, rah, rah, rah. And off we, off, off we go to the races. After all, it would be my successor who has to clear up the mess. I'll have got out 
with my with my share options at peak levels and so on so we've seen that time and time again that, that's that's the name of the game so you you have a you have a position where you've got a vast amount of supply in nine of the ten leading economies in the world responsible for two-thirds of global gdp you have aging populations very high proportion of them as say uh, close to, to uh, 45 percent in in japan same in same in germany italy and so on, around so so you you are not going to get growth in this area i'm not so worried about ability ability to pay pensions or health care things and so on what i'm worried about is simply social unrest that you're going to you, you, and you're already seeing signs of this you know we've had the argentine election for example i mean half half the world's population goes to the goes to the polls this year you know obviously the russian election you know not necessarily as as, as competitive as some others but you know all of them to some degree are, are competitive and you look at argentina and what do you get when a country doesn't do very well for a while you get populism you get simple answers to complex questions but well, we saw that with our our, our friend president trump uh, and he's having another go, as we know. And so, and it's understandable that some people say, well, you know, I, I'm not going to you know, set up with all this. So you're now getting, on top of this loss of the demographic dividend, on top of the loss of the peace dividend, and the need to spend more money, or a lot of money, on defence now, and to and move up, you know, rebuild capability very quickly, because we are at war, whether we like it or not, at, at the same time, you're also seeing the problem that individual countries are not clear about what's happening. You haven't got a World War II support. I mean, you always had people in World War II who didn't agree with the war. And so that was always a degree of strikes and everything else. But basically, people understood what was happening and felt it was the right thing to do. There isn't that understanding at the moment. There isn't the... And, 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 and this is really where the, what Wall Street is doing is, is really very dangerous. At some point, if we're right, and we were right in 2008, unfortunately, if, if we're right about this, people are suddenly going to say, wait a minute, why did you keep telling us there was a soft landing? We could have prepared for this, and you told us we didn't need to. And that loss of faith in political leadership and in government is very, very dangerous. Do you think there's a difference between subprime mortgages and demographics? Because subprime mortgages... Okay, the assets, they're not worth what they, the price goes down 20 cents, so you go know, from a dollar to 80 cents in a day, the liability structure seizes up because all the short term, you know, offshore, yeah. like, very, very short term, yeah. shaky LIBOR financing. I just, I just did a, an interview, by the way, about what a sham LIBOR was. Uh, so I'm out my brain, like that, I can understand, okay, it can go from the, the bank is exists on Monday, and the bank doesn't exist on Tuesday, I get that. But Democrats very, very slow. And you don't think over 20 years, the society adapts to like Japan, demand, demand has has actually the rate of growth of demand in Japan has fallen off a cliff, no doubt, over the past forty years. But you know, it, it's not like Japan is still producing with as much optimism as it was in nineteen eighty five, right? If there's one person that history is going to blame for all of this, it's Ben Bernanke, because here was this very arrogant Princeton professor who went over. You could read Shirakawa, the uh, former governor of the Bank of Japan, read his autobiography, which is very revealing about how Belanke turns up, he's still just a professor at Princeton, and he lambasts the bank. You are so stupid, you don't know what you're doing, all these modern techniques that I tell you, and you're just not listening to me at all. Who does he lambast? The, 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 bank, the bank of Japan. 
Oh, oh okay, yeah. I'm the, I'm the government of, of Japan. And he's personally responsible for this whole... If you know, anybody who's studied economics has read Galbraith, The Great Crash. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, great one. And Galbraith, you know, was very clear. You know, you had mad speculation, and then you had a comeuppance for it. Not in Bernanke's universe. No, 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 no. All that went wrong, the speculation was fine. All that went wrong was the Fed didn't hand out enough money to enable it to continue. And so when he got the chance, he decided, because the demographics in 2000 were very clear that you were getting to aging populations. You hadn't, you know, the women had been having less than 2.1 babies since 1970. They've now been having them for nearly 55 years in the West. So you know where that's taking you. And, his, and therefore, that leads you to deflation. Nothing very wrong with deflation. Some of the best periods of economic growth in the 19th century were due to deflation. The chemical industry, when we started, you know, prices came down every year. The product was more affordable. As a result, you sold more. Well, what's wrong with that? But not in Bernanke's little academic mind. No, no, no. We, you know, making sure it doesn't happen here, to his 2003 speech. And so... In, when you went to subprime, instead of saying, we've made a mistake here, guys, we really shouldn't do it, let's just let this play out. So, oh, no, no, don't worry, I'm a hero. I'm on the front page of all the magazines. You know, the men who rescued the world, notable there weren't any women there. Women probably have more sense. But they, so this vast amount of stimulus went out and has continued. Every time you got a blip, instead of saying what you and I would do, you know, I'm not sure this is... You know, I mean, you, you told me this was going to happen, Jack, and actually it is happening. I wonder if you might be right. A lot of monetary stimulus, fiscal stimulus was was very large in 2009 and afterwards, but relative to the deflationary hole in the global economy, it was actually, you know, not uh, very large. And in Europe, you, you had a lot of uh, austerity. I think this time around in the US, there was a lot of fiscal money printing. And I, I you know, you say central banks can't print babies central banks can't print demand. I think the U.S. government printed demand. I mean, the U.S. nominal demand is so above trend. The recovery is was much more than a recovery, I would say. I'm actually agreeing with you because printing babies means that you actually do have real demand in the end. The babies grow up and they, 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 create, they create demand, they create supply. But if you just hand out money, and, and what Europe did after all, even more extreme than the states, was not only zero, you had zero interest rate policies, Europe had negative interest rates. So you were, you know, the bank was actually paying you to borrow in places like Sweden and so on. I mean, uh, Japan are the same. I mean, this is obvious madness. Yes. But the powers that be said, no, no, this is absolutely, this is Alice, here's, it's actually Alice through the looking glass, you know. You, you look at it, you say, this is what doesn't make you say, oh, no, no, that's how, that, I'm the white queen. That's how it is. And so that's, that's why I'm saying you completely fooled large numbers of people, large numbers of companies and so on, into thinking that this demand was somehow real and that you could just print money and you would always create demand. But nobody ever asked the question, well, if this was so easy to do, why hasn't it been done before in the first few thousand years of human history? And the answer was, People had tried. They, you know, you know medieval kings you know, before the time of the states had, had clipped the coinage, and you know it was all silver, and they clipped it, and so you got, actually got less silver and so on. And at the end, the whole thing collapsed, and they had to start again, which is what's happening now. The, the result of that, I guess, is inflation. So, okay, nominal growth, spending is high, but it's just inflated away. 
Although we, in the U.S., you know, we did have a lot of deflate, uh, disinflation, and I think you actually think that there could be a, a deflation, so prices actually going down, not just the rate yeah. of price increases going down. So I see the rest of the world. I see you know Europe to you, Africa, China, Japan, Antarctica, everything to you on on, on the, the slowdown. But on the, the U.S., when do you think it's going to show up in the hard data that the Federal Reserve, you know, really really cares about? The Federal Reserve they look at everything, but they you know, they really care about the rate of inflation and unemployment. So the unemployment rate is at 3.7%, you know, inflation is at you know, 3 or 4%, growth, consumer you know, consumer demand and spending is growing at 4 or 5%. At what point do you think this weakness is going to be seen in the hard data? Because I would say it hasn't been seen yet, and not you, but a lot of people have been calling for a recession for, you know, close to three years or definitely over two years, and it hasn't been going in in the data and, you know, going back to your point about as an oil trader, it's like, okay, you know, sure, but but t- tell me when, tell me when and where, you know? Okay, well, let, let's let, let's just sort of peel back the onion. Yeah. And the the most likely outcome that we're going to see is, is two things. One is that prices themselves continue to fall. There'll be bumps and so on, you know, nat gas, there might be a problem with nat gas, there might be a problem, Middle East might push up oil prices, you know, and so on. all these things could happen. So, you know, it, it's foolish to try and sort of give a, give a number. But the, the, the general direction is you've got an awful lot of supply and not that much demand. So over time, prices will go down. The corollary of that, we've had the warning sign with Silicon Valley Bank, just as we had the warning signs before subprime, where somebody is left holding the baby. And in this case, what you're going to see is that the 20% of companies who can't roll over, or can't pay their, pay their interest bill out of earnings, their earnings go further down, and they can't then roll over their debt. And that is the big, that is the big risk. Because and once that happens, you have a very swift downturn, because suddenly everyone goes... From a very optimistic mode, hey, let's go out for a beer. Yeah, it's all going well. Gas gone bust. Yeah. Oh my God, we'll, you know, and so on. And and, and, and that's the that's the risk. I mean, it's, it's you know the, the the famous Hemingway phrase where he meets his friend Charlie, and he says, "Hey, Charlie, I, I you know, you how did you go bankrupt?" And Charlie says, "Well, slowly at first, and then very quickly." And you know that that is the risk now that we have. That because people are looking in the wrong direction, looking at the wrong data, when they start to look at the right data, things will unravel very quickly. Now, are we three months away from that? Are we six months away from that? Are we nine months away from that? I don't know. But I think, you know, for viewers, I think it's worth keeping a very close. Well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, look, we see this big risk. We're generally right about big risks. For goodness sake, please try and keep an eye on it. Because if you see it actually happening, it will be too late. And I mean, how bad do you think it'd be? How, like, how high do you think the unemployment rate would go? And do you think you know cons- consumption will go negative on a real basis, on a nominal basis? Because it sounds like you, you think it could be pretty severe. If you look at scenarios, and let's you know, yeah, uh, you know, let, let's let's work, do a worst case, right? So I'm not saying this is a base case. It's a worst case. Test out your assumptions. Supposing we do get a major implosion in Japan. And China follows suit. And people become very alert very quickly to the idea that all this money they've lent there and all this trade they're doing and so on has stopped. Because that's the other side of the coin. It's not just the money you've lent, 
But you know, we rely on parts from Japan, we rely on parts from China, we rely on business and so on and so forth, and that starts to stop. And so that then unravels, and that rolls back. We also already have wars. We have political disputes internally about the wars. And, you know, should we be fighting? You know, should we be supporting? What are we doing? And so on. So we haven't got a unity of purpose here which would carry us through. Now, in that case, in that case, which is the worst case, you would have a depression along the lines of what you had in the 30s because nobody would be able to reach agreement on what you needed to do. They would all be fighting each other. Why wouldn't it be just printing a bunch of money and giving it to people? Because that wouldn't work. You've lost, once you've lost confidence, once you've, this, is, this is the Chinese problem. It yeah. worked in 2020, though, for the US. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, but I'm, the, the worst case that I'm presenting for the states is that you lose confidence. That's what I said about trust in government. If you, if you look at China from 1998-1999, when they started to open up the housing market and you could actually buy a house for the first time in China, there was never a downturn. You know, we're sailed through because, and people believed that, quotes, the government will never let prices fall. And they were absolutely right for 20 years. You kept on doing it. And then it wasn't the housing market that caused the problem. It was the performance over zero COVID. And suddenly people lost confidence in the government on its handling of COVID. And, you, you know, you can't be half pregnant. You can't be half confident. So suddenly you lose confidence in the property market as well. Yes. And that's the risk. That it's not something that you say, oh, but, you know, nothing really has changed around the housing market. It's been like that for years. Yeah, of course it has. Right. But now people are confident that the government knows how to solve the problem. So I guess that the risk is if the government printed money and gave it to people that they would just keep it in cash because they're yeah. fearful. Well, when you look at what's happening now in China, people yeah. are saving like mad. They're saving because they're medical expenses, they're saving to meet pension expenses, so they're saving, saving like, like mad. So the, yeah. the consumption is, is really the, the, the opposite. Instead of growing consumption, which is what you need to do, yes. consumption is under real pressure. Now. Yeah, I, and then you got to put you know, put on uh, two hats. I'm you know, speaking to the audience here about like as an investor, obviously you want to save a lot of money and invest it and grow. But when you're thinking as a macro macro economist, like individual saving is money that's not being consumed, so it's money that's not being earned by other people. Likewise, you know, oh my God, the government's spending so much money. Oh, and thank God, my government's so responsible. It's saving money. It has a surplus. Like a surplus is for the economy, and a surplus, and a, excuse me, a, a very large deficit such as we're running the U.S. One of the one of the issues that the states has got is that it, it you know you talk about it being the lender of last resort. It's the buyer of last resort. So China's surpluses and the surpluses of other other surplus countries, which are mercantilist driven through subsidies, vast subsidies in terms of infrastructure and manufacturing subsidy and very very low wages, that comes at the expense of the states. And of the, the state thing. workers and producers, but not, it comes at the benefit of American consumers. Well, so that the, they, they, they get the American consumers get the benefit of lower prices, but they also get the the, the disbenefit yep. of the you know, oh, the two yes. things that, you know, the two things still go along. Now, if you're still a growing society, you can probably live with the debt, but if you're not a growing society, you know you can't grow on the on the scale that's happening at the moment. By any, by any means, what you see is the deficit keeps rising. And the deficit you know, isn't just a government deficit, it's a, it's a deficit across 
business across individuals, you know, the New York survey that comes out and so on. I mean, look at autos. We haven't talked about autos, thank goodness. But, yeah, auto auto loan lending is up over a trillion dollars. People, you know, I've lived in the States. You know, you have to have a car in most parts of the States in order to get anywhere. And and people, people, because... The, the the prices went so high and the average price nearly hit fifty thousand dollars. Well, who can afford fifty thousand dollars if your average earnings are seventy thousand and if you're not earning average, you know, and so on. So and used car prices went up as well. So you took out, you know, you had to take out large loans, and people are now underwater on those loans. And the insurance costs are going up. You know, the average insurance cost, I think the AAA said was is two thousand dollars now a year. Uh, and so, so you've got a tremendous expense going on here. So loans will will obviously be one of the one of the pressure points uh, that will cause problems sometime this year. I mean that's that's no doubt now. So um, that's what I mean. Once the economy starts to roll over, it doesn't roll over slowly and say, "Oh, by the way, Jack, uh, come back in six months and you'll see a bit more decline." It goes, "Oh, I don't like that anymore," because people pull back. It's sentiment. Sentiment is really important in this game. And at the moment, if sentiment is euphoric, you know that it doesn't take a lot to change it to despair. Yeah, I think it's 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 t- it's tough for the economy to weaken substantially if uh, you know so many people have a job and and their wages are going up six percent a year. It's sentiment is sentiment is good in the U- in the U.S. I, I only speak for the U.S. I know, yeah, I, I know, and I, I, I yeah, but how, what what I'd ask you is how reliable is all this data? Are we getting? 80% response rates, as we used to do, right? 80%, I know, okay, there'll be outliers and everything else, but broadly speaking. But if you're, if you're getting half that response rate and you're guiding policies and you're getting these tremendous revisions going on, you've got to ask yourself, am I navigating, you know, through a cloud here? So if, if that was the only data set, I think those, those weaknesses that you point out, the, the low response rates, for, for, I mean, I, I don't know enough, but I, I, I grant you that, that. But I think there are other data sets that verify the strength of the, the labor market. There's, the, you know, there's the, the Atlanta wage tracker. There's the disposable income that it shows. I mean, there's, there's tax receipts that shows that you know, Americans, as, as their incomes are, are rising. In, in, in 2022, Costs rose more than incomes, but in 2023, I again, I can't believe it's 2024. Incomes rose more than costs. So I, I, I do, I do trust that data, not because I think that the the measurements are, are perfect, but because I think other data data verifies it. And if there's kind of a you know a triangulation of if if the other data is is it a certain the other data indicates that that data is right. Does that make sense? Or or in the bulk. But but but, but let, let me just add one what one query to this, which is we do know and we agree, you and I agree, that every until the quarter three at, at the at least, everybody had more money in savings than they had before. So yeah quarter Q three of twenty twenty three. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so three six months ago, everybody had more money. The latest data seems to suggest that the top ten percent or top twenty percent, depending on who you talk to, still have more money saved than they did before. But the other eighty percent or ninety percent don't. And what seems to be happening, and we can see that in the data, you've got a lot more, but 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 buy now, pay later, mm-hmm. something going on. You've got a lot more. In, if you look at the jobs data, one of the key findings, which is probably right, is that people are taking on two jobs. Isn't that stimulated though? If I'm not saying it's good for the soul that you you know, you work a hundred hours a week and then 
you're either eat, you're either working or consuming. You never sleep. Either work, consume, work, consume. Yeah, yeah. But for the for an economy having two jobs, that means they can buy more stuff, and that means yeah. more well, well, stuff. Yeah. But, 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 but I would put it the other way around. If people are having to do that in order to buy their the basic needs, which is what the WalMarts and so on are telling us, you know, if you talk to the retailers, you know, we're, we're not talking about Fifth Avenue here. You know, mm-hmm. We're talking about where do ordinary people go? Joe and Jade Doe. Where do they go? What's happening to them? They are very, very pressed for cash, for the basics. And so my argument is that what we seem to be seeing is they've spent their excess savings, right? They haven't got enough, but now they're having to double up on jobs and working in order simply to survive. And, you know, we know rents have gone up and mortgages have gone up. So, so if you're on the right side of these things, you're okay. But if you're not on the right side, let's face it, it's 325 million people in the States. So not all of them are going to be on the right side. Mm-hmm. You know? And you've got a significant percentage. If you've got tens of millions who are falling out on the wrong side, and that number is increasing, that's where your risk comes from. You're absolutely right about the, it's not anecdotal data, but it's what the individual companies are mm-hmm. reporting, like on the Walmart, the earnings calls and stuff like that. I would say, I, I think, you know, a year ago, people, two years ago, people would say that the the savings are going to dry up and they haven't so far. And I think that like for Bank of America, it's, you know, they, 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 I mean, the CEO publicly said people who, and I'm going to make the numbers up, you know, people who had on average $2,000 in their checking account in 2019 now have a multiple of that. And, you know, this is Bank of America. This is not Goldman Sachs private wealth management, super fancy clients. Take Jamie Dimon, you know, who's yep. not normally some somebody who's going to you know, talk down America or anything. And, you know, he's, He's been you know, sounding an alarm for quite some some weeks now. He's been sounding off about the fact that he sees much greater risks in the economy than the general acceptance of risk. You know, I have a view of risk. You have a view of risk. If we're more or less aligned, we may both be wrong, but that's that's okay, sort of thing. But both of us can adjust as we as we learn more. But if 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 nobody has any sense of risk at all, and they they're blindly going on assuming that everything is okay, that's when you have a have a problem. You know, it's the euphoria thing. You know, and and, and you know, if you're an investor, the the one thing that you watch out for is euphoria, because you know all all markets, particularly a market like like this, which has gone on very strongly through everything, you know, has a blow off. Now, was the 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 pre Christmas rally was that the blow off? We'll find out, I suppose, you know, and, and so, you know, you, but these things, what, what, what worries me about it is that when you get into very high levels of speculative excitement and when you believe that Apple, the only question about Apple is when it's going to get to $15 trillion market cap and so on. And nobody's out you know, Well, actually, sales of Apple have been going down and Apple's market share has been going down. Now, Apple, I believe, has been quite clever. Because what they've done is they've actually now cornered around 50% of the used handset market. And so they're selling, you know, they're taking and refurbishing handsets and selling them, and they're getting an income through the App Store. Now, the App Store is coming under a bit of pressure from regulators and so on. Okay, it's a different question. But they're, you know, they're not making all their money from selling iPhone 15s now. They're diversifying a lot into used phones and so on. And those aren't, those aren't very expensive phones. You know, there's 50 on. Most kids now, their parents give them a used phone. It's, it's interesting. You know, I travel around and so on. And there's been a growing market for secondhand clothes. And it's becoming very fashionable to have secondhand clothes, wear granny clothes and so on. I was, I was walking through an airport 
this week, in fact. And there, in the middle of an airport, where you expect everything, was a, was a, was a store, store selling second-hand clothes. I mean, very, very tarted up and glamorous and so on and so forth, but they were second-hand. So I think, you know, the, 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 there are quite a lot of... I think we, I mean, we, we come back and talk in a year's time. I, I think that we'll, we'll look at a number of the signs and say, well, wait a minute, actually, these have been, these, these have been growing for quite some time and there were, there were warnings there. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this stock market rally over the past two months has been so extreme that it's, it's funny to me that we've had three days of mild declines in the stock market. Yeah. And you're saying, oh, my God, I'm saying we're within 3% of all time highs on the S&P 500. Which, which is why I'm worried about sentiment. You know, I mean, if Apple doesn't get to 15 trillion value tomorrow, I'm, 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 you know, what do I do? I, I'm, I'm lost. So how are you thinking about the market as an investor? I take it, you know, you're probably not terribly bullish on commodities. You don't strike me as terribly bullish on on stocks. What do you, I mean, the only, I guess, one of the few alternatives is, is bonds. What, what do you think happens to interest rates? Well, I mean, I think you know, the, the, the obvious thing that, that is going to do well and is starting to do well is defense stocks. Defen- then, no, but you don't mean defensive stocks like utilities or no, I mean, like weapons. Yeah. I mean, weapons. Yeah, yeah. That's very unfortunate. But yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, not in favor of going around killing people, but it does seem to be a growing fashion. And, and unfortunately, yes. You know, and so, you know, that, that, that is going to be a recession proof industry. Interest rates, I, you know, I, I, I would be very cautious. If you look at the pattern of, of US interest rates since they began to rise in March 22, they tended to go up, correct, go up, correct, go up, correct. And, you know, my, my guess is that that's what we're seeing at the moment. I don't think, I'm with Jim Bianco, I don't think that we've peaked yet. As stocks have rallied over the past two months, so have bonds. And you know, when yeah. bond prices go up, yields go down. So yields have gone down over the past two months. But you think that's just kind of a mid-cycle correction. You think yields yeah. will go back up. I, I, see, I, I don't think that people have, have actually put together the idea that there might be major defaults. So, you know, because there, there's, you, know, you, you can worry as an investor about return on capital. That's what we generally do. Or, you know, we want to get 3.5%, 4%, whatever it is, and so on. And then you start to worry about return of capital. And once I start worrying about return of capital, that squeezes all the speculative people very, very fast. Because I say, look, uh, Jack, you're a very honest guy. You're very honorable. I'll lend you as much as you like. Oh, thanks, Paul. Those those guys over there, never, you know. And whatever they say to me, whatever they pay, oh, we'll pay you 20%. In fact, the more they tell me they're going to pay 20, 20, oh, that's not believable. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to Jack, you know. Um, so, so that's that's the real risk today with interest rates, not whether there's inflation or deflation or anything like that. There's a, there's issues around, but so the real issue is: is the lender going to get his money back when he wants it? So, so, so you're talking about credit markets and corporate bonds, that that type of stuff. What, what about treasury rates, risk-free rates, where it's you know the, your your person you're lending to is is the government? Yeah. Um, uh, so, do you think yields will also rise there? Well, you've you've you've, well, you've got you've got political risk now with this. I mean, in the in the UK, for example, I, I saw an interview with the the head of the debt management office in the UK who's just retiring and has done a fantastic job. I mean, unlike most of, of the central banks, he's actually borrowed long. So the UK, I think, from memory, has about a fourteen year average life. Really. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's very interesting because the uh, I think the European consumer, the uh, British consumer, 
has a much shorter duration. Oh, yeah, yeah. Consumer is not. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, down at the end and the that the administrations have tended not to borrow long because they say we want to leave that for corporations. So they've mm-hmm. borrowed short, which is why the deficit is, is spiraling. But you know, so so my you know, but, but he he was he was saying, and obviously this was triggered by the Liz Trust disaster and quasi quarting and so on, but that really woke investors or lenders up to the idea of political risk. And you saw what happened to the UK gilt market. It went bananas for a few weeks and you know, and then she then she left and it wasn't that order was restored because lenders had lent, had learned an important letter lesson and they remember now what is going to happen when johnson says i'm not going to agree this debt deal for a start people say, oh yeah well, okay that's just bullshit so it's election year and so on but he I, I doubt that he's got a majority in the republicans for doing a debt deal yeah that's my reading of the situation He's only got there because all the other people have tried to do debt deals and they've been thrown out, you know. And you know, he's a good old Louisiana boy. He probably you know, he's used to talking to 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 to, to Crocs and so on and alligators. So you know, he he recognises the people around him. So if he wants to stay in the job for longer than a few weeks, he's going to have to take a tough line and say no, we won't do it. Now, what do what do lenders at that point start to worry about? They say, well, supposing supposing. This guy did get into government. What would he do with the debt? Would he pay it back? Would he say, we're going to cancel it? It was put by an administration we didn't agree with. I think they've got they've got to pay it back. I, I, some people could argue there can be an implicit default. I don't like the word default in terms of using inflation, but you know, inflate the debt away. I could, I could see that, but you don't, you don't sound like you, do, you think there's going to be deflation incoming. I mean... If if the U.S. Treasury is not safe and it will be paid back, nothing is safe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, and and that's that's where, you know, I I I I grew up in a world of geo, geopolitics where you spent a lot of time thinking about what could go wrong here, and then I had thirty years of not bothering to think about what could go wrong at all. But the guilt always got paid back, right? Yeah, you know. So I, yeah. I I'm not I'm not putting putting it forward as something that's going to happen next week or next month or whatever. But what I'm suggesting is that the mechanism, what you've got is spending is out of control in the States, is out of control in a number, number of areas. And both parties are guilty of having supported this. Yes. But both parties refuse to take responsibility for what they have done. Why can't the printing continue? The printing will continue. Why can't it? So the base case is that the printing continues, mm-hmm. but actually the politics say the printing can't continue because the Republicans, the Tea Party group or the, you know, or whatever, uh, they, they don't want it anymore. So you haven't got a majority in the Republican House group, as far as I can see, to vote for a, you know, a, a continuation of business as usual. True, but I, I feel like... You know, in July, I forget the exact month of last year, that was also true. And it's probably been true in most debt ceiling debacles. And, and, and what, 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 remind me, you know, my memory is going here. Who was the speaker at the time? Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. You know, I mean, you it know, could happen. he'd have this, you know, the, there were always warning signs here. Yeah, I can't remember, I think 14 or 15 votes before he actually got it. So that, I mean, I don't know the guy, you know, but that tells me he's pretty determined, right? So he battles through. I wouldn't have bothered going through that. I don't think you would have done. But anyway, he did it. 
And then he was thrown out anyway. So, you know, now Johnson, obviously, you know, you're not going to bring the government down before Christmas. That would be, you know, he, 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 you know that would not be a, a good move. But if you want to make a, a, a pitch to, to your voters, and the key thing here, the, the, the reason that I'm, I'm making this point is we've moved away from government by consensus. We're not talking about a government. We're not talking about media where we try and find how do we come together here? Ever since Karl Rove came in 2004 election, how on earth do we get George Bush Jr. re-elected after this disaster of Iraq? Oh, let's divide the country up and have a debate about gays in the military. Ever since then, policies have been based not on trying to find the middle ground, but on trying to find the most extreme ground that will motivate your voters to go and vote more than the other side. Now, it's quite complex. I mean, you know, you, the Republicans have tried this with, with abortion. And it seems to have backfired in a number of places in them, and so on. So I'm not, you know, so they, 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 there are issues around the strategy which are becoming more and more apparent. But you know, I, I don't see Johnson's making any sign of looking for looking for an agreement. I don't see, you know, the Republicans in the Senate pushing. So all I'm saying is, you and I will, will agree that it would be completely stupid, and it would wreck. You know, all of this would not be good news at all. I reckon there's at least a 10 or 20% chance that it might happen, that we won't, you know, we'll go three months or so. We've been three months or so before without But that's that. not a secular bull move, a secular bear move in rates. That's a, a blip in the same way that, you know, there were some one-month treasury bills yielding 7% for a few days during the last mm-hmm. debt ceiling stand-up because they were worried not that they wouldn't be paid back principal, but that they wouldn't get their interest payments. So it was actually irrational, you know, pricing it or, you know, the appearance of rationality. But but if, if there is a recession and there is deflation, the Fed has to cut rates significantly and bond yields what? should... I mean, you know, people, you know, if, 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 if there is re- recession and deflation, actually the Fed becomes irrelevant because the markets take over again. You know, all this glory seeking of the Fed, Fed governors going out. No, oh, look at me. I'm. You, know, you just go back to being government. You know, the market decides. I mean, this is this 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 is what used to happen, and this is what will happen again. So we won't have to worry about re- reading the paper and being all excited about who said what to whom and what they didn't say, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it may provide you know le- less interesting interviewers interviewees for you, Jack. But I shall be glad. I don't know. I think it would be a pretty exciting time. But I, I do think. I mean, even in two thousand and eight, I mean, it was the Federal Reserve that cut rates. They couldn't control the real rate, LIBOR, the, the offshore euro dollar rate. That's another thing. But that does not exist anymore. And I mean, it will maybe, you know, I'm sure that it will be the market pricing it in and this very smart bar, bond market, which, you know, I think yeah. is very overrated, you know, will we'll have priced it in before, which which always happens. But that doesn't mean that it won't be the Fed, you know, making, making. Well, I, I, all I can say is, you know, you, you know, I'm really very boring and, and it shouldn't be on public display. But I, I did actually read David Kiniston's history of the Bank of England, which is the okay. oldest surviving. Oh, wow. And, and yeah. you know, Kiniston is a terrific historian. It's really interesting. You know, it's, it's actually a page turner, even if you're not that interested. And, and what you see is that you go through these cycles. And essentially, you have a cycle of brokers who are doing the short-term thing and making money, and then everything blows up. And then you get in some more sensible people who for a while actually run things on a more longer-term basis and so on. And then, you know, I mean, that's what we've seen. You know, we had we had Paul Volcker coming in, pretty sensible. Actually, Greenspan was pretty sensible for most of his time. I mean, I met Greenspan. I thought he was very impressive when I met when I met him down in Houston. So you know, he knew what he was doing. And then you get in the you know, the, the Belankies, the 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 Yellens, and the Powells, who clearly don't know what they're doing. And you know, so so you're just in this cycle which has gone on for 
hundreds of years. And, and so you will now move out of, you know, people will, will realise that, that Powell, I mean, I mean, look at Powell's performance at press conferences. You know, I mean, there was the wonderful one a year or so ago where you know, the statement was all very negative and the rates are going up and so on and the market falls. And then he starts to speak and he can't resist saying, oh, but Chris Ruggerborough of, uh, of A has the question, you know, after half an hour, uh, Mr. Mr. Chen, are you happy that the market has gone up? <gasps> oh, no, 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 no. Even though if I remember, if it, there was, I think it was November of 2020, yeah. Chris who is a great journalist and who I like his questions. He I was actually wrong. The market was the market was actually down, but he said it was up. And then Powell was worried that it was up because it was easing yeah. up. But it, had, it had been up and then it started to come down. Yeah. No. Yes. But at the time that he asked the question, yes, it was correct. Right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. Wh- why do you, th- wh- why do you think Powell is, I mean, I, I have a uh, respect for Powell and he's, he's, he, I, he, I mean, the data inflation has fallen like a stone and the unemployment rate has not gone up. I mean, he's looking pretty strong right now. What make your make your bear case for Powell? What's your bear case for Powell? He told us we've we've had three three moments where he told us there wasn't going to be any inflation. Yeah. And it was all transitory. I'm with you there. He was wrong. And he had turned out that the chemical industry was right and there was massive inflation. Mm-hmm. You you can't now turn around and say, Oh, you know, you know, had has he sat there through that and kept saying team transitory, we're not going to do anything about it. Okay, fine. You know, he, he can't rewrite history, but you know, he might have turned out all right. But he didn't. He changed. He did exactly the wrong thing at the wrong moment. He didn't, you know, you know, with the benefit of chemical industry knowledge, you had to raise rates earlier if you wanted to head off the inflation. He didn't. He blindly said, no, no, our models don't, don't show any inflation. Then he panicked. Then he took them much higher at a moment when chemical industry was also already telling him, actually, no, inflation is going down again because it was it was caused by supply chain problems. It was caused by COVID, all those ships piled up in Los Angeles, et cetera, et cetera. Very valid reasons for it. But you know, and, and it was too big to say it was transitory. It was going to take a couple of years to work its way through. But he got it completely wrong. How did he get to the parts two and three wrong? Okay, he got transitory wrong, but how did he, what did he get wrong about drastically? So if, if you know, T0 is January 2022 and, you know, inflation is soaring uh, high, you raise rates very quickly, you know, you start with 25, you don't have 50 and then 75, and then you jack it up as soon as possible. And then once inflation starts going down, then you slow the pace of increases and then you hold it there and then boom it. Inflation went from 9% to 3%. Yeah, but 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 my, my 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 point is that by the time he was pushing up rates, yeah, he was all, he was he, he was already a year behind the market. Correct. So that's that's he he got a point he got he got transitory wrong. But what about two and three? So so what he's doing is he's reacting. Whereas a good Fed chairman, if there, such a thing existed, you know, jury's out on that one. But yeah, let's say Paul Volcker as as an example. A good Fed chairman takes a view of what's going to happen on the next two or three years and how do I therefore want to position myself in order to optimize the position in the light of the dual mandate. And so you know, had Powell known what he was doing, he would have said, in, you know, as the inflationary pressures brewed up, right, we need to raise interest rates. We need to you know, maybe get to 2%, maybe 3% and so on. Take it relatively gradually. You just sort of lean into the problems. And then, as you see that the supply chain issues, which is all they were, were starting to before before you get to the point where people are starting to have. I mean, look at some of the wage rises that have gone on now. 
Mm -hmm. There are 30% and 40% catch-up rates in airlines and cars and so on and so forth, right? So you've now embedded the, 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 the whole the, the inflationary process in, you know, which is, all, which is the problem of the 70s. This is what Volcker had to tackle, that you allow inflation to get going, you then get the second wave, which comes in a bit later because of all the pay rises. And this is, this is, what, this is what Powell has done. He, he didn't want to upset anyone. And so he's ended up. You know, he did upset a few people, a, a few uh, people who made a lot of money with low interest rates. Oh, if, yeah. But investment he, banks, he, private equity firms. He, he wants to be liked. The, pro, the progressives who, you know, want very yeah, well, yeah, fine. You know, yes. I mean, he, I, I would say, I think he's done a, a pretty good job. That's just my yeah. opinion. Thank you. So how much do you think the Fed cuts, though? The issue that you've got is a really complex dynamic now. Because you've got embedded wage inflation coming through. You've seen that, you know, in, in the wage settlements and so on. So the, the, there is a limit to how how low inflation can go on a you know a semi permanent basis. Nothing is you know six months or or so. It doesn't matter. But you know, if it's going, so so those those are going to come through. That will inevitably leave you with unemployment uh, you know, because people are pricing themselves out of jobs now, and you know that's that's it's just an inevitable fact of what's going on. And you've got a very dangerous position in credit. You've got a, a, a lot of over-leveraged people. And at the same time, you've got an awful lot of government borrowing. So the Fed's position now, you know, I, I would have a lot, of, a lot of sympathy with, because if you cut rates, you run the risk, very strong risk, of reinflating the, 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 the speculative dynamic. But if you don't cut rates... You run the risk of actually the whole thing falling apart. So you're you're really you know you're, your margin of error here is not very high. And the thing that has, has really got a problem is you've got an election. You haven't got consensus between the two main parties of what needs to be done. They're at each other's throats, and that's going to get worse. You haven't got consensus within the Republican Party about what they want to do, let alone between the Republicans and the Democrats. And of course, you've got the No Names Party coming along, which may or may not uh, upset the cart as well. And then at the same time, you've got these external risks of China, Japan. You've got a war with Ukraine, and you've got a war in the Middle East. Paul, what about the Fed? How, so the market's thinking that this is signing like a five to six cuts by the end of the year. Do you, do you think uh, it would be... I mean, that's just that's just speculation. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. What do you think? How how low do you think the Fed will go in this cycle? Because if you think if 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 you know, someone were to tell me there will be a severe recession, you know, within the next eighteen months, I would think that you know the Fed cuts to two percent or so. Well, something. Well, 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 wait, wait a minute. Is the my point is is the Fed going to be in control at that point? Because if you have a severe recession, then by definition you're going to have lenders refusing to lend to weak players. And you're going to have a lot of defaults. And so if I've actually got money to get money under the mattress, I'm not going to lend it to most people. And you know, and so we you know we can we can see that some of the some of the rates that people are paying already are up in the teens. So yeah, that's the credit spread, but I'm, t- I'm talking about what, what the Fed sets the risk-free rate to. The Fed can do what it likes at the overnight rate. It, it has a moment in crisis, it has a role there and so on, the, 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 the one week, the one month, three months and so on. But the question is whether the Fed's actions at the short end, which it clearly does control, whether they impact what's happening at the real 
heart of the matter at the, at the, the two, five and 10 year rate level. And what I'm arguing is the Fed will become irrelevant at that point because lenders will take things in their own hands. I don't care if, if, I'm, a, if I'm a lender and I've got 100 million that I want to, or want to lend out to someone, I don't care that Powell has said the rate is going to be 1% or 2% or whatever. I'm only going to lend to people that I trust. So everybody else is going to have to bid up. I'm just talking about government rates all across the curve. And if Powell says 1% or 0%, I mean, the five-year will be probably be, be, pricing, be pricing it in. So- I'm disagreeing with you, Jack. I'm, I'm okay. saying if you, if you look back in history, if you look back at the 70s and 80s, that didn't happen. The failure, Burns kept his rates low and so on. That's fine. Yeah, he did. But he didn't, he didn't control the market. The, the, there was this thing called the bond market vigilantes. Yes. And the vigilantes, are, there are signs that they're starting to come back. Yeah. And once the vigilantes are there, the Burns could say what he liked. Didn't matter. Nobody took any notice. He didn't have to worry about, you know, what, 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 what's the latest Fed governor said. He didn't even know who they were. They were irrelevant. So, so what is your view on, let's say, the five-year treasury yield, the 10-year treasury yield? You know, I imagine if we had, mo- if you took rather most people who think that a recession is coming would be inclined to be bullish on duration, that interest rates, you know, longer-term interest rates, not the Fed, will decline. You said there's a 20% chance risk. Okay, the yields could go up. You're in that Jim Bianco camp. But so that means you think there's an 80% chance they decline or so what's your base case on rates? My base case on rates is that I would be very, very cautious about anything beyond three to six months. I mean, you know, we're talking to our clients, you know, the most sensible strategy that they're adopting is just laddering. It's just take, you know, you know, there are t- what I'm saying is there are too many uncertainties out there that I, for one, can't process them all. And, you know, so, you know, but what I can see is that I can get a, you know, or my, my clients can get a reasonable return by you know, not taking very much risk, six and nine months uh, out. You just roll that over, roll it over and ladder. So and when, you, when some of these uncertainties come, you know, are cleared up, you know, if we get, you know, a clear majority in the election, if the war ends, if both wars end, if China, if I'm wrong about China and, and, and Japan, and they all manage to sail through, then yes, then we go back to, you know, taking, having, having more confidence and moving up. But if you don't have, what I'm really saying is, if you don't have confidence that you really understand what might happen, which is where I am today, I don't take that risk. It's like, well, it's like Warren Buffett, you know, saying, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, 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 why aren't you investing in tech? Because they don't understand it. Makes yeah. sense. People who do, fine. But I do not. I know. I, and maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe I don't understand all these things. But I think that there are massive geopolitical risks out there which aren't taken account of by the markets. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, Paul, part of the reason why I was excited to have you on today is because I, I believed you were, and, and indeed you are, very, you know, very attuned to risks, much more so than I think your, your average person in the market today. I've got a question comparing you not to other people, but comparing you to the past in the Paul Hodges. Have you ever in your career been as worried or as risk averse as you are right now? No, no. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean when, 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 when I was young and you're young, you're, you know, I, 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 I took a, 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 the, the lender wouldn't, wouldn't lend on the house that I bought. My parents had to give their deeds in to support it and so on. I had to borrow from a girlfriend in order to, Put, put out my share of the deposit and so on, and interest rates were at fifteen percent. And I went, okay, yeah. So you just you just do it, you know. And so I, I'm not normally 
you know, I, I, I like to understand what the risks are. But for me, the biggest risk was I had nowhere to live. <laughs> you know, that was pretty important to me. The fact that it all worked out, I had no idea how it all worked out, but it did. So I, I'm not generally uh, worried. And I haven't been, you know, until, until recently. I, I, you know, I got worried about subprime because people weren't listening. And so then subprime happened. So that was that was through. And we were then, as you know, fairly, fairly bullish about things and so on. I, I, I'm now, you know, this is, you know, I've, I've lived through the Cold War. I've lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. I've lived through, you know, the major, major downturns of 73, 4, and so on and so forth. And to be honest, I noted them, but that was just like, this, this is easily the worst environment I've ever seen. Geopolitically. Russia, Ukraine, Israel, that's, yeah. everything, and all these things impact, you know. And, and uh, what I'd almost say is that the, the advantage we had, although we didn't realize it in the, the 60s and 70s and 80s, was that we didn't know that all these things were important. I mean, I was a sales rep for you know, the UK's largest chemical company, second largest company in the world, and I was selling to the paint and resin industry, right? Well, not, not a very fancy kind of uh, a, a thing, an important uh, learning learning ground for me out there with real people spending their real money making payments. So I had Unilevers and so on as well. But, but those people, when I went, I was the ICI rep. And I gave them the ICI view on what was happening with the Kremlin, what was happening with the oil prices, what was happening in US politics, what, and so on. That was what everybody wanted to know. And the ICI system, because it was the largest company in the UK, we had a whole range of people who were focused on that. And the central banks had a whole range of people. And so on. so you, you really, you, you could still be surprised, but you understood the background of what was happening. You know, I don't think anybody particularly expected the burning wall to fall in November 89, that they could see that something was happening here. And, so on. And, it, and when it happened, it wasn't a surprise, but not many people actually forecasted it. It was one of those situations. But some of the things that are happening today, which are easily forecastable, people, people haven't noticed the warning signs. I mean, Bear Stearns. Mm-hmm. Once Bear Stearns went and subprime, that was it. You know, there was no coming back. Once Silicon Valley went in this cycle, that's it. There's no coming back from this. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that there's that there are... That there are warning signs, and up to a certain point, oh, Paul, you can get worried, but this is going, yeah, 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 right, okay, well, But once that's happened, something changes in the site. And with Bear Stearns, it was absolutely clear that behaviors changed. Now, the Fed ran around doing all sorts of things and so on and so forth, and it was disguised for a while and so on, but it was gone. And similarly with Silicon Valley Bank, you know, there is a problem there that banks have lent, regional banks have lent money to people who aren't going to be able to pay it back. No, not, not Silicon Valley Bank. That wasn't Silicon Valley Bank. That, they, they bought, their defaults were very, very low. They, they bought treasuries and mortgage-backed securities whose decline in value is because of rising interest rates, not because they couldn't pay yeah, back. Yeah, the whole issue is, can you actually hold, hold to, to market? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right there, you know. And so they, they had assumed that they would be able to hold these things to market when in fact interest rates were going up. So that was clear. So they couldn't they could they couldn't they couldn't lend their money to people who would pay them enough to cover the losses on their on their holdings. Yes. Classic classic mismatch. Right. 
So, you know, that, you know, the, the key, and it's, it's like we work, you know, what's the easiest way of going bankrupt? You know, let, let, let lend long and borrow short. Yes. And, and that, that, that's, that's, that's what that, you know, that essentially is, is, was, was, as I understand it was, was Silicon, Silicon Valley and that essentially was we work and that was essentially Bear Stearns and everything else. And there's a lot of it around. I mean, look what's happening to commercial real estate, you know? Or, or, so somebody's got to take the losses on that somewhere. Yes, I, not, uh, yeah, that, it, but. I, agree, I agree with you there. So I, I don't profess to be a Paul Hodges of the banking system, you know, what, what you are to the chemical industry and the, the, the auto industry, mm. but I'm an aspirational Paul Hodges of, of no. the banking industry. I would say I, I was wor- very worried about that from you know, March into, into the summer and things were looking worse, but I think there's been a little bit of a, of a turnaround in the banking sector and money stopped flowing out of the, the banking sector. The Fed is going to cut rates, which was, will help. I mean, I, I, I think that it, I agree with you that it is ex- the Federal Reserve's uh, level of interest rates is pretty overrated on many aspects of the economy, but one aspect where rates definitely do matter is, is, is the banking industry. So I, I, I'm maybe a little bit more optimistic on, on the banking sector. But geopolitically, it sounds like you have some severe concerns. I guess we, we could put them in three categories, Russia and Ukraine, Israel and the Middle East, and China and the, the US. Which are you most concerned about and why? Ukraine. Ukraine, okay. Tell me. Uh, bit, well, uh, very simply, Pete uh, said many times he believes the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was uh, the, the fall of the Soviet Union. He said many times, repeated it recently, that he wants to uh, restore the Soviet Union. And he said recently that once he's conquered Ukraine, he's going to go into Poland and the Baltics, both of whom are NATO members. What's the latest from the the Russia-Ukraine war? I, I, I'm sad to say I have not been following it as much as I, as I should. No, well, I mean, it's, it's being pushed off the headlines by what, what, what the terrible things that are happening in the Middle East, obviously. You know, you, the system can't seem to have enough reporters to to cover all these things. Is essentially the the problem is that the Americans, the American government, has run out of, of money. It can't provide, therefore, anti aircraft cover and everything else that Ukraine needs. It hasn't it hasn't didn't give it enough to to attack. And so, what the Russians did was they 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 they, they stockpiled all their rockets and everything else for the end of the year when they knew that. The defences were starting to run out, and they're just firing them off day and night. And they just hope that you know there won't be any agreement in 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 Congress, and that nobody will actually get round to taking their money from them and giving it to Ukraine and so on. And that they will be able in six months' time, a year's time. No, but they don't care. Hundreds of thousands of Russians are being killed and injured there. They don't care. It's not important to Putin. So, and so if you don't understand that, you don't understand the risk. Tell us about green energy. I know you know, one area in which you're always optimistic is the work being done in uh, sustainable energy and renewable energy, uh, wind, solar, uh, nuclear, uh, electric vehicles. And you know, we're talking about the actual technology here, not just the marketing ESG, yeah. but the actual technology. Yeah. Uh, tell us what has been happening on that front, as well as do you have a concern that it sounds like the significant concerns uh, about a slowing economy, recession, global recession, and or government fine the, the wheels of, of government finance not working? I mean, a lot of the stuff is funded by the government, so you know a government shutdown would be very unfortunate for for this, no, uh, no well, doubt. I think that if you, if you if you translate, there's a guy Mark, Mark Jacobson, professor at Stanford, 
who's done a lot of work in this area and has produced you know programs for every state in, in, in the states and every country in the world more or less and shown how you can move to wind water and solar as your main uh, as your supplies and countries are doing and, and, and i'm not really worried about those i mean there's supply chain issues and so on and so on you're always going to have that but essentially they are much cheaper than you know the, the alternative and they're much less risk so you don't you're not going to be held to ransom on on the oil price or whatever by russia or whatever so you know so they've got all sorts of benefits and we've always said that these things yes they need support to start with because they're starting right at the top of the cast curve and you you know you can't expect you know if you start for the first time to know what you're doing uh, so there's naturally inefficiency but you've now got to the point where you can roll these out and they are much cheaper so yeah, I mean, if you if you if you look at us here in Little Portugal, you know, we 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 had this issue a few years ago that we wanted to import LNG, but we didn't have enough demand, and so we tried to do a deal with France to send the surplus to France. France didn't want to do it because of you know its nuclear industry and so on. So we were left. We had to do wind, water, and and, and solar. And result through all the crisis last couple of years, our electricity prices haven't gone up. That's you great. Know. Yeah, I'm sure know. a lot of countries in, in Europe are jealous of you. Uh, one that comes to mind is Germany, that mm. despite its you know, pledges about green energy this, mm. green energy that, very dependent on natural gas and coal. Yeah. I, I think I've noticed a lot of wind projects, maybe offshore wind yeah. projects being canceled. Yeah. And some, again, I don't know anything about this, but you know, I follow what people say. Some have said, oh, actually, wind and solar are a lot more expensive than the models suggested. And that's the reason these are being canceled. What, what do you say about that? don't think there's any evidence for it i mean the you will you will inevitably get people who are over optimistic the, the key the key issue that you need for any kind of project like this at scale is you need some guarantee of what the price is going to be and so you need a contract for difference or some form like that because you know, the, the world is is uncertain and prices do go up and down and so on and and the problem in the uk has had this problem in, in, in the last last round, that he didn't get the contract for distance right, so nobody nobody came forward to invest. I mean, the Germans are a bit crazy. I mean, you shut down nuclear and you haven't got wind and everything in place, and you then open up coal mines. Excuse me about this. I'm not sure you quite know what you're doing here. Yeah, uh, shutting down nuclear doesn't seem very green to me. But well, well I mean, I, you know, I I think it's pretty clear that you don't need nuclear, but if you have nuclear, it, I don't see the reason for it. On the other hand. If you, if you then look at the, the auto market, what you see there is part of this demographic shift, I'm afraid, that we're talking about. In the, when we had the, the, the baby boomers in their prime, they developed and introduced for the first time this thing called the middle market, where you could buy your, 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 your Chevy or whatever, and you could put a go faster slide on it. Instead of paying $20,000 for it, you pay 25000 because I've got a go faster stripe or whatever it was. And, so, and prices went up. And the, the the average cost of the car went up to forty eight thousand bucks or whatever, and then of course interest rates went up, which meant you know you're paying seven fifty eight hundred bucks a month and so on. Yeah, you know, it's not going very well, and you need to get back to the world where you've got an affordable car. Now that is actually quite different, difficult. And if you look at at Elon Musk, I mean Musk had the opportunity of a lifetime to come through with his twenty or twenty five thousand dollar. Car. If he, if, he, if he had that, it would walk off the lots. He wouldn't have to bother selling it and so on. But he didn't. He went for this stupid hundred thousand pound truck. I mean, who wanted it? 
yeah, I'm I'm not a Cybertruck fan, but I, I think I think he, he he wanted to start Tesla originally luxury car markets so that he could have a higher enough gross Ooh. margins to so, so that that makes sense. So he hasn't been he but he's been cutting prices aggressively, right? For the model, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean his original strategy to laid out in two thousand and seven or something was we'll start off at the high end with the rich punters who haven't pay any price at all. And then we'll use that to fund the development of the mass market car. And and and, and so th- this is where the Chinese have got a got a real head start because they've actually always started from the position of having a car that sells at ten to twenty thousand bucks. So you know you have to design good- you know you know Solantis and so on are aware of this and Renault and so on. So they are they are rushing to catch up here. But you have got a problem in the U.S. market that they got used for three or four years, particularly during the, the, the COVID years, of pushing up the prices, adding on more costs because they were oh, borrowing is very cheap, don't no, no matter, and so on. And they left the middle ground, you know, to itself. And they, and they don't have they don't have a value proposition. If you wanted to buy a twenty thousand buck car in the state, you can't do it. But actually, you know, and, and so you you you've, you've you know, if if you assume everybody can pay forty eight fifty thousand, that's fine. But if they can't, you know, Detroit, we have a problem. Yeah. So so I, I get China. China's co- companies have one structural advantage is that they're used to making electric vehicles for ten thousand yeah. dollars, and that should be very uh very attractive. What what I mean, I know BYD I think is the biggest one, and then, then Tesla. But what company are you the most excited about? Who? Who do you think is going to be the ultimate uh, winner in the electric vehicle company? And I'll say, I think a lot of people would would answer Tesla or either as number one or number two, but I don't know if that's your answer. No, I, I don't think Tesla has a chance, frankly. I get lots of hate mail, I know, but you know, because, because Musk promises but never delivers. You know, he's been promising full service driving for yeah, I, yeah. I'm know. I'm with you there. He you know, he sometimes yeah. delivers though. It's that well, but years late. And, and 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 so on. So yeah. Whereas the key with a startup is to is is to always promise less than you actually deliver. That's where you build credibility. And he didn't have to do it. But no. In answer to your question, that the market is in a transition stage. So I think that what we are moving, and I know that Cruise has made a big big problem in 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 San Francisco and so on. But actually, the you know, the, the, the other the, the other people are, are still operating quite nicely. And you know, if you look at what what's happening in Europe and so on, I think we will move. We will significant move towards autonomous vehicles in two or three years' time. One of the keys to this is going to be battery swapping, and battery swapping becomes a really interesting game changer because at the moment you worry about battery charging, and if you know if I have to you know drive to to visit you, and I have, is there a charger, and will it be working, and everything else, and so on. But if we, if we have battery cha- battery swapping. And we have a common battery, which is kind of where we where, where we are where we are moving. They're becoming a commodity. Then I, I don't mind because I simply drive into the service station in the way that I would have done to fill up with gas with gasoline, and I swap over. And so I think a company like Neo, which has got enormous, maybe sent a couple of billion support from local governments and so on in China. You know, none of this is being done for but by the shareholders. Or by income, but you know, China has decided that this is an area where it can build exports and so on. So I think the battery swapping and the potential for autonomous driving is actually where the game will be. In in terms of electric vehicles themselves, they're actually very simple. You and I, if we wanted to, you know, we could get the the forward guidance audience and we could say, look, guys, you know, we're going to build this fantastic forward guidance thing. It's going to have a 
a, 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 you know, a signature all over it, you know, so it'd be really desirable and, and so on. And and we could make 50,000 of them and they'd be dirt cheap because it's only an assembly job. You know, the battery you buy is whatever the battery costs, battery costs are coming down. So that there isn't going to be a market for EVs, in my view, that you can make money out of because anybody can do it. There's no why are in America, and again, I hate to always you know, bring it back to America, uh, but uh, what? why uh, you know, in America are companies having so much, so many issues either constructing electric vehicles at cheaply or selling them cheaply? And I'll get you know, Ford and GM, I believe, have both encountered hiccups where yeah. you know, a lot of people would, would rather own a Tesla than a Chevy Volt. And well, well simple marketing, you know, you, you start off with, with your enthusiasts, you know, they're celebrity types and so on they don't care what it cost is they just like driving a tesla or whatever you know so oh look at them hey that's just, oh, wow you know so and then you then, then, then you get the early adopters and the early adopters tend to be the sort of people with quite a lot of money and they like new things and they like talking about them and so on and so forth yeah and so with that bit of the market that, that's that's where evs have been but that isn't where the auto market is the the, you know, the next stage that's 15 percent or something of the total market the next 35 market is the, 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 it's not the early adopters now. It's actually the mass, it's the start of the mass market. And the mass market, if I'm a mass market person, I'm worried about will I be able to get the kids to school? Will, it, will, 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 will I get it recharged? If I have to go and see, see granny, will I be able to get there? What, what, you know, so very practical people. And that's what the, you know, the, 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 the U.S. car industry was very good at doing that, gasoline and diesel cars. Yeah. It's completely failed to do that with EVs. I, I see what you mean. And then, so China, China has that edge. You know, give it, Charlie Munger passed away last year. He was a big admirer and investor in BYD. Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you think about that, com- that company and their prospects? I mean, do you think BYD will be number one and ultimately be the, the winner? Well, I, I, I think it's... It's it's still too early to to say. B, BYD clearly Charlie and Warren spotted something there well ahead of everybody else, and they they you know through, they they stuck with it through through the ups and downs and so on. So all credit to them. You've got Neo who 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 are, who are pretty good. You've got I wouldn't rule out Stellantis. I think mm-hmm. Stellantis. I remember you're a, you're a big admirer of them. You know I think Carlos Tavares is, is is on the right. Like, you know, he's Portuguese, Portuguese, so he understands about poor countries. You know, he's got, got his head on his shoulders and so on. So on. I, I think VW has got major problems. Really? Because, yeah. You know, there's, there's one major, you know, at the end of the day, I think Mary Barra, GM, or the, the forward people and so on. I think Jim Burley, yeah, your, your, your namesake, you know, I, I think they've been over-enthusiastic, but they've probably got the resources to come back. But VW have a, have a, have a real issue that they've got a lot of profit in in China, and of course they've lost that market. So you know the prestige car for every member of the Communist Party was uh, a, a, a V car. They're hardly selling any. Now. And now it's what? And Neo or Tesla or BYD or Tesla's taken over in in that area. But but actually, what what's happened is that and this is a complete shift in ten years. In ten years ago, Chinese couldn't make cars for for you know for 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 dustbins. Sort of thing. They had to have Western technology. I mean, the Chinese yeah. car lasted three years. They had to have the Western technology. They had to have the Western engineers, how to build a factory, and so on. Well, now you've got VW paying one point something billion in order 
to be able to to partner from with in in, in the Chinese market, which was a market yeah. they each own. Mm. Now, Stellantis had done a much more interesting thing that they've they've spent one point seven billion, I think, but in order to learn how to get those 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 manufacturing techniques back into Europe. So they they're they're not they're not interested in the Chinese market anymore. They realize that's gone. What they are interested in, how do we replicate what's happening there in our home market? And so that's why I think they could they could do very well. It'll take a while because you don't, these things don't happen overnight. But this is this is a, a, a five to ten year game. It isn't a five to ten minute thing. Yeah. Well they are they are growing really quickly and I remember, you know, observing a lot of electric vehicle companies in 2021. There's so many that raised billions and billions of dollars that yeah. either didn't deliver at best or were playing out frauds. So, yes. you know, but there are a lot, but just because there's a lot of negative players doesn't mean that there's a lot of great work being done. Paul, thank you so much for, for joining us and being truly exceptionally generous with your, your time on, on a Friday. Uh, people can follow you on Twitter at Paul Hodges one. And of course you are the, the publisher uh, of the pH report. Quickly, can you tell people uh, how they can get in touch with you as well as uh, what subscribers to the PH report uh, uh, can find there? Well, thank, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, we have a website, which is new-normal.com, which has, has got all the background. We do a newsletter if people want, which is free each week. And uh, what, what, what you get is essentially a team of people with a lot of experience in energy markets in China, in chemical markets, obviously, and geopolitics, giving you their autos. Yeah, every quarter we do a a, a deep dive on the auto markets because it's such the largest manufacturing industry in the world. So you need to focus on that and so on. And we do do sustainability as well because that is becoming important. And we give you our best view of what's happening. And the nicest thing I think that anybody ever said to us was that they a very large corporate who said, well, we read your report and we get to the end and you give us an inclusion. We love you giving us inclusion. And we say that's completely wrong. But then because you give us the logic, we then have to go back and go through your logic. And, you know, and quite often, the guy said to me, you know, quite often, you know, we are you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. We do actually know more than you do. And we can see where you're wrong. But unfortunately, he said, which is why we continue to subscribe. Sometimes we didn't get it right. And we've spotted something we didn't know. Yes, um, and that is yeah. immensely valuable to a to a very very large corporation. And I, I, you're absolutely right about you know you and the folks who read the PH report have a view. And to be honest, that is something that drives me crazy about some research reports is when they say, well, on the one hand this, on the one hand that, and they don't have a conclusion. It's like just say nothing. And they, they yeah. wanted to say nothing. They don't have yeah. a real point of view, but they just had to write because you know the report is yeah. due Tuesday. So yeah, I, I, I mean the the other thing we do is if we believe something, we say it. Yes, we yeah. don't say, "Oh, you know, people won't like it." I mean, we know we've lost subscri- subscriptions from companies where we said, "You know, we don't think that this kind of project is right." Well, you can't say that. We're not putting that on our engineer. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. Most companies, actually, most individuals will, would are happy to be challenged. But you know, if if you know, we we're not, but we're not the people who who take your watch and then tell you the time. <laughs> yes, you, I I can confirm that, and you know. It sounds like you and I may see things a little bit differently in terms of the economy and, and the, the financial yeah. system. But when it comes to industry, chemicals, autos, environmental projects, I mean, I, I wouldn't put anything past you and your team. And you know, if there are companies who are looking for expertise, Paul is your man. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks again, Paul. And uh, thanks everyone for watching. Thank you.
Thanks for watching. Make sure to show some love to today's sponsor, Public, by going to public.com slash forward guidance. Again, that link is public.com slash forward guidance. Also, Forward Guidance is available not just on YouTube, but on Twitter and on all podcast apps, including Spotify, where a video version of the show is also available. Thanks again for watching. Until next time.